Hey, everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Well, it's the first Thursday of the month, which means it's time for dermatologist Dr. Jessica Krant talking healthy skin and glowing from within. Now, guys, you have to know that whenever we have a medical doctor or any doctor on the show, especially Dr. Krant and probably Dr. Lyle as well, you've got to send me the questions in advance. You know, we have over 50 going all the way back to December that still haven't been answered. So that's why we can't take it from the chat. We're so sorry, but we do appreciate you watching live. Just go to chefaj.com. You sign up to my newsletter every Saturday. We send you the schedule, who's going to be on. You send your question, who it's from, and I keep it on a special email on my phone. We save them until they get asked. Please welcome Dr. Krantz. So good to see you again. Well, Chef AJ, thank you for having me back again. I love being with you so much and your audience is fantastic and it's always a good time. Yeah, I'm curious, why do you think skin and Dr. Lyle, which is psychology, these seem to be the two, you, you seem to be the two guests that get the most questions. So that, that seems to be what interests people a lot. Um, you know, I think they, I really truly believe that skin health and uh, our, our presentation to the world and our mind, our mental health, our mind and psychology go hand in hand. They're really inextricably linked. There is actually a subspecialty in dermatology that is all about the overlap of psychology and mental health and skin health. Our, we know that our mental health and even our stress levels and things like that physically affect our skin health. And we know that when we have skin issues, skin disease, um, it affects our appearance to the world. It affects our self-image and it affects our mental health. So it really goes back and forth and hand in hand. And I think these are two things that people are almost, you know, the most highly aware of how we look on the outside because we look at ourselves every day and what's going on in our minds and what's, what's driving our lives. So I'm not totally surprised that those, these are two popular topics. What is the name of that specialty? I've never heard of it in dermatology. Um, I don't remember how they call it because I, I want to say something like psychodermatology, but that doesn't sound right. So it's, it's that's, something that's very like interesting. Cause I know that with gastroenterology, they have psychogastroenterology, right? I'm sure it is psychodermatology, but we have to understand that it means the overlap of psychology and dermatology. Well, I'm going to look it up. That's very interesting. So we'll jump right into the questions dating all the way back from December. So Jody, sorry, it took so long, but we got so many questions for Dr. Krant. She says, can you talk about rosacea causes and treatments? My dermatologist suggested laser treatments. I've been whole food plant exclusive for four years, SOS free for a year. And the rosacea started a year ago. Rosacea is such a, a popular and common topic because it's very widespread. And the part of the reason for that is that what the word rosacea that we use, it actually encompasses an entire spectrum of a red, red, um, reddish, uh, flared up facial skin issues. And I truly believe that in that spectrum, there may be four or five different skin conditions and we're lumping them together and calling them all rosacea. So it can explain why some treatments help certain people with rosacea and other treatments have no benefit. Those other treatments help different people and the original treatments that help the first group don't help the second group. It's a combination of sensitive and damaged and inflamed skin barrier, which can lead to infections, lead to inflammation, bumpiness, stinging, and itching that tends to be in the center of the face as opposed to acne, which may tend to be in different areas of the face. And it can also be a tendency, it can, the term can describe also a tendency to flush, be red, and have a highly vascularized face that gets red with exercise, with drinking alcohol, with exposure to heat, um, sometimes that can be familial, genetic, and completely normal for you. And sometimes it can be exaggerated or acquired over time or due to chronic exposure to these factors. 
So for, I think it's Jody, you said, I don't know Jody's subtype of rosacea, but for sure, rosacea is always helped by repairing the skin barrier in a calming and gentle way, not overstripping natural, healthy skin oils and not using a lot of irritating skin products. It's also valuable to watch dietary triggers of rosacea, which can be spicy foods, hot foods, caffeinated drinks, alcohol, and fermented and pro- and um, aged foods like cheeses and processed meats and certain foods like that. Um, what else can I say? Sometimes people have done all of the right things. They've changed their diets. They are eating healthy. They're eating an anti-inflammatory diet and they're using gentle skincare and there's a persistent redness. Sometimes that redness is blood vessels in the skin that have been become permanently dilated from months and years of being inflamed and exposed. Those blood vessels may not be able to fully retreat on their own just with lifestyle change. In those cases, we might need to add a laser or an IPL intense pulse light treatment or a few treatments, a series of treatments to help those blood vessels become injured, have your body decide that they are no longer wanted or needed and help your body to dissolve them, to reduce the background redness. We can't always do it with lifestyle change. One thing I would like to mention is that SIBO the small intestine bacterial overgrowth is it has been more recently clearly linked with rosacea. So I do have a handful of patients who have come to me for rosacea as a dermatologist. And I'm always amazed when I say, have you had any GI issues? And they say, yes, because we know now that if we treat the SIBO, if, you're, if your primary care doctor or your gastroenterologist is able to help you, treat your bowel inflammation and your microbiome disarray that your skin may be able to get better just from balancing your gut alone. Wow. That's fantastic. I remember you were on the GI health summit talking about the microbiome of the skin. Well, in addition to psychology and skin being totally inextricably linked, gut health and skin is also inextricably linked. So There are actually research papers that talk about the link between the brain, the gut, and the skin, and especially talking about rosacea, actually, Uh, how stress in our lives and stress in in our daily routines and lack of sleep and all of those things that trigger stress mess uh, our gut microbiome up and our gut inflammation and that gut inflammation and imbalance in the microbiome of the gut shows up in the skin as rosacea, as psoriasis, as eczema, as itching, as acne. So for sure, they're all linked where, you know, we can, we, it's, it's, they're all three factors affect each other directly. Yeah, that's so interesting because generally specialists only look at that one thing they're looking at. And I Googled psychodermatology. That's what it's called. It says it's the treatment of skin disorders using psychological and psychiatric techniques by addressing the interaction between mind and skin. Right. It's, I mean, I, I hope that it will become more and more understood and more popular because it's really true. A lot of our skin diseases are directly and also indirectly related to our emotional and and mental wellness and our overall well-being for sure. That is really fascinating. This question is from Dana and she said, after menopause, my nails have ridges and are brittle. I eat a whole food plant-based diet, no sugar, oil, or alcohol, very little salt. Is there anything I can do to help my nails? Well, let's assume she means the longitudinal vertical ridges that grow straight out from the cuticle. That is a sign of sort of overall skin aging. That is also the sign of nail plate aging and the nail matrix, which is the root of the nail underneath the cuticle can get a little bit dried out. It's just like when our hair doesn't grow as well, our hair gets more dried out after menopause and the hair growth slows. The root of the nails, the matri- the nail matrices also starts to um, 
um, have some dysfunction and the cuticles themselves also can get dried out. The nail plate becomes less well sealed. So it becomes less waterproof and water and moisture damage can get into the nail plate and into back into the matrix under the cuticle and cause the nail plate to be dried out. So one of the best ways to keep the surface of the nail smooth as it's growing out, presuming that there's a well-balanced diet and lack of lack of stress in our lives and good sleep and all of those other lifestyle factors is to keep the nail plate, that's the hard nail, uh, moisturized and sealed and also the cuticle with a, a greasy, thick cuticle cream, um, maybe Vaseline petroleum jelly. I like some of the hand creams are kind of a mix between a greasy ointment and a white cream. And I find those work well because they will absorb in and feel silky and not look, not feel too sticky, but they're also sticky enough to stay around even through hand washings, which is important. And every time we wash our hands, our hands get exposed to soap or water. It's important to put those creams right back on. It's not enough to just do it at bedtime. Wow. Thank you. Well, you know, there's also a question on nails from Vonda who said uh, you were previously on Chef AJ Live talking about horsetail extract for nails. Do you have a brand you recommend and how much should I take and can it also help hair? I don't know the answer about oral extracts and oral supplements. I'm not um, really focused on oral supplementation. So I don't know a brand to tell you or a dose. You might be able to find out from uh, your local um, holistic doctor or maybe ask at the health food store. But I do know there's a topical prescription liquid called Genador that is by prescription only. And it is it's cosmetic considered cosmetic. It's not covered by insurance and it's extremely expensive. So that's the one I do know about that actually works topically. As far as oral supplements, I don't have guidance on that. Great. Thank you. This is from Naomi. She wants to know if she can use estrace or estradiol cream prescribed for a different reason on her face. She heard it helps wrinkles. And if so, how much? Um, there's a lot of research about topical estradiol cream, which is real biologic estrogen. Um, and a lot of people curious about whether it can be used for anti-aging on the face and hands. I would say I actually did look into research about this and the jury is out about whether it's safe. So I would say there is some evidence that it may help skin behave in a younger way, the way it is actually usually prescribed uh, vaginally for vaginal um, tissue support. That is a very important um, factor for women. But in terms of taking uh, that same cream, which it sounds like she's asking about, she says prescribed for other reasons and put it on the face, two, two things. One, that cream formula is made for uh, vaginal mucosal use not for external skin use. And two, the jury is out on safety because estrogen is a very powerful hormone that affects our cancer risk, especially postmenopausally. Um, and it's usually given in a dose dependent way vaginally to support tissue health there. But to put it on the face as a cream without a given dose um, when it's a prescription for the vaginal mucosa, we don't know how much would be absorbed. We don't know how much would be appropriate to use and we don't know cancer risk right now. So I can't really formally recommend it, but I do know that it's very interesting topic and a lot of people are talking about it. There's just, con there's just, um, conflict in the research over what the final outcome will be. Now, there is also some research into phytoestrogen creams, which would be like soy-based extracts. Those might be beneficial. And in fact, soy is helpful for sure in evening out pigment, surface pigment. But there's not, doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence yet about whether soy in a cream can really be not noticeably anti-aging on the face. So I, I, topics I, to get more information about. 
I think the bigger question is people really want to know what they can do about wrinkles. And so what non-surgical things do you see that works the most? Is it a potion? Is it a cream? Is it, you know, those, those gua sha tools? I mean, what really works for wrinkles? Does anything really work? I think a combination of everything all the time probably does help. It's a combination of stretching the skin to trigger the fibroblasts, which are the, are the cells in the skin that when they're injured, poked, cut, or stretched, they, they, they signal the skin that it's been damaged and they start a wound healing process and they create new collagen and elastin. So that's how these lasers and microneedling procedures work. But also I would believe that some regular massage and, you know, face exercises, they probably do help a little bit in ways that we will never be able to measure because we will never have a truly controlled experiment where one same person biologically who has the exact same life has done it versus not. The closest we can come are things like twin studies. And even those are really not possible to control to such an extent that we would be able to tell if one twin doing facial exercises her whole life and the other one not is what make it is what could make the difference. So I'm a, I'm for anyone doing all of some of that. If it's, if you're careful, if you don't hurt yourself, if you're not buying dangerous devices from the internet that are not legally sold where in the country you're buying them, that is for a safety reasons. So don't hurt yourself at home. And I do believe that the only, the only documented FDA approved cream for wrinkles is tretinoin, which is that the the original retin-A. The -the over-the-counter versions of tretinoin, the vitamin A derivative are, are basically the retinols that are ubiquitous now. That means pretty much everywhere. And it, it does work. It's, it's a vitamin A cream is another, is another sort of natural version cream that people are trying to recommend for anti-aging. I can't say if I know that that is safe. I know that the retinol and the prescription tretinoin are, are well researched for safety and they're regulated for safety. I don't know about vitamin A cream you would get somewhere else. And you had mentioned that your secret to putting tretinoin on your little, you know, and if people are using moisturizers, what's the order? Well, I always say to my patients, it's really a little bit of a personal experiment. It works differently for everybody. And it will depend on your skin, the timing of your life, um, what your evening getting ready for bed routine is able to be in terms of how much time you have. If you're working from home versus coming home at 10 o'clock at night and have to go right to bed. So my tricks are to get, I I prefer my way of thinking about it is actually to use a very small tolerable amount, but use it nightly rather than some other people and some, even some of my colleagues that I really adore, respect, and I think are brilliant, um, have different methods where they use it a couple of nights a week. I like a nightly use because I think it's the most powerful, um, cream that we have out there. And it can do about five different things that a lot of other products are trying to do at the same time. Reduce the power of it by not putting it on right after washing your face. Usually if you wash your face and put it right on, you'll end up burning your skin and feel like you cannot tolerate it. So do not wash your face right before putting it on. Either wash your face much, much, much earlier, hours earlier, or if you don't really have anything on your face that day, I don't care if you don't wash your face that night. I'm not somebody that feels like you have to put soap or cleanser on your face if you didn't put makeup on and other things necessarily. A couple nights a week, you can skip the face washing. Put a little pearl of the retinol or the tretinoin on your fingertip and then rub all your fingertips together so that they're just wet little applicators. And then individually, tap your fingers all around your face to to evenly divide that small amount of retinoid first, and then go back and spread it in and don't add more. If you feel like you missed an area, 
just make sure you touch that area the next night when you're first starting. If you get too dried out, you can start playing with moisturizer. Either put a little bit of moisturizer on after you put on your retinoid or put a little moisturizer on after you wash your face and then you're, and then wait. And then you've got a little protective layer there to slow down the absorption of the retinoid later, or you can sandwich it um, a little moisturizer first, then the retinoid, then a little moisturizer later, whatever you need, feel how your own skin feels. If you are feeling tight and dried out, know that that's the retinoid working. Don't be afraid of it. It's going to start to try to get your face to exfoliate. It's going to start to get it to be activated and inflamed. If you were to continue doing that, it would keep turning over your skin cells and triggering new collagen formation, but it's very uncomfortable personally and socially to go through that. So don't be afraid of it. It's nothing dangerous, but if you want to slow it down, play with your moisturizer timing, play with your amounts. If you need to skip a few nights, skip a few nights. It is fine. And then just start again low. And other one other thing that some people do is they mix their retinoid in with another cream. That's an option too. I don't love it for me because I feel like you have less control over how much you're actually using and how much is actually getting on your skin. I, I'm more, I like to be more scientific about it. Put my retinoid on and then put moisturizer so I know what's where. Thank you. There's no, there's no one set of rules. Great. What works for you? So I know, and some of the questions we get different months, but we still ask them same question just to honor the person that sent it. But this one, I'm pretty sure we never got. It's from anonymous because they say they have an embarrassing problem. And would you suggest a dermatologist or a surgeon for abscesses that randomly appear on the scrotum taint and anus? All STDs and STIs have been ruled out. This can be um, furunculosis, which is inflamed hair follicles that are like deep pimples, or it could be cysts, which are um, not inflamed, but they're, they're little walled, true walled cysts that is, that, that can form on the, in the scrotum area. Um, I would say start with a dermatologist, but depending on what treatments are needed, not only might it benefit from a surgeon, but also may need a, a, a different kind of a workup, maybe a more systemic workup because there are conditions such as hydratinitis suppurativa, which is really a systemic inflammation that can make cysts and inflamed tracts in the skin fold areas, in the groin area, in the armpit area, and under the breast. This can happen to men and women. There are some lifestyle modifications that may help. It may require systemic immune modulating medications, and it may you know require a lot of different types of treatments over time all put together. This, if they're just regular cysts, it can just be genetic and they can be removed surgically. Some dermatologic surgeons will do this work and some won't. So it's really individual based on the doctor. Definitely see a board certified physician dermatologist or a board certified surgeon, possibly a board certified urologist to start just to get a direction to head in. Can you be non-board certified and still be a doctor? You can, it's getting, you know, it's more rare now because in the old days, you could come out of medical school with an MD or a DO degree right out of a regular full medical school and get a license after passing a few exams and practice, really legitimately practice as a physician or become a, be a general practitioner or do you know, one year of internship, which is like the first year of residency and then legally practice. That's as the, as there's been credential creep over the decades, that's much more rare to find now newly graduated doctors who may be brilliant and very, very um, skilled may not have passed their uh, board certification, which comes at the end of specialty residency training yet. They may have missed the exam for a reason or need to take it again. Um, they may be have completed all of their requirements to practice um, as a board certified physician in a specialty, 
but they may not have passed that final board exam yet. So they could be called board eligible. So you want to find a board eligible or ideally board certified MD or DO physician. Those are the fully trained, fully fledged physicians um, for, you know, more complex skin issues. Great. Thank you. Here is a question from Tammy in Minnesota. She says where she lives, it gets well below zero during the winter months and getting sunshine on her skin is a very rare thing. She wonders how damaging tanning beds are to use for a few months during the winter and if there are any benefits to using them. I started using one for the first time this year in order to prepare for a vacation in a much warmer climate. I seem to be much happier on the days I use the tanning bed, but I don't want to do irreparable damage to my fair skin. I think we talked about this last time. I'm, you know, there's a lot of new information about light, both ultraviolet light and visible light and photobiology, meaning by the biology of what we do, what light does to our bodies and photoimmunology, what light does to our immune systems. It's very complex and it's very important and it's not all settled science yet. I would say that I cannot tell you that tanning beds are safe. They they do increase the risk of skin cancer. Even if they claim they only have certain bulbs that are safe, the bulbs that are considered safer are also the bulbs that are less beneficial in in health ways. So when they're used controlled by a doctor. So I Tam is it Tammy? I can't really answer that question for you. For sure getting light on your eyeballs in the darker months of the winter is helpful for our circadian rhythms and our mood. Um, and ultraviolet B rays, which are not in commercial tanning beds, do help to create vitamin D, which is also important for our health. So it's it's complex. I would not be able to recommend going to tanning beds though in the winter. I think there are safer and healthier ways to get our eyes, our eyes, our retinas exposed to light help our moods and circadian rhythm, and also to be able to get our vitamin D, not necessarily through tanning. Thanks. That's good to know. Okay, let's see who's next. Oh, this is a fun question from MJ. I'm curious what Dr. Krantz's recommendations are for sunscreens that surfers could use during very long surfing sessions. Most sunscreens need to be reapplied, reapplied after 90 minutes in the water, and sometimes my sessions are even longer than that. I'm hoping there's something out there that could last and is reliable. It's been a long time since I've thought about surfing and sunscreens. I know there used to be one called Bullfrog, which was extremely greasy. And one of the only ways that you would be able to get a sunscreen to stay on your skin in the, in water for that long would that would have to be greasy like that, which you know surfers might not like if if it's going to make them too slippery. So, sun protective clothing is really one of the best bets. A, a you know some kind of a, a skin or a wetsuit that has UV protection is probably the best bet, even though. The surfers may not want to have any, any clothing, you know, slowing them down or messing up their, what's that word? Um, you know, hide the dynamics in the water. I can't remember the word I'm trying to think of. Um, I don't know of any new magical sunscreen that's made for more than 90 minutes in the water, especially being that active. What about zinc oxide? However, Does zinc oxide well, stand for a long time? Zinc Zinc oxide would be just like this bullfrog. It's sort of greasy and thick, but eventually would rub off or wash off in the water eventually. Um, for the face, it's not a bad idea, but clear zinc oxide and micronized zinc oxide don't protect as well as the white, thick, or the hot pink zinc oxide that is really truly matte and you can't see through it. So you can do that for fun. Um, but I wanted to mention there is a supplement that is helpful to reduce the, uh, the damage that ultraviolet rays can cause on the skin. It's from a fern plant extract. And it's called one of the, one of the brands is called HelioCare. I think there are some other brands now it's, it's polypodium leucotomus 
And that has been proven to reduce the damage that ultraviolet rays cause in the skin. So we do recommend it for prolonged sun exposure. You take it early in the day. For people who have a true sun allergy called polymorphous light eruption, or for people who are allergic to the sun when sunscreen is on their skin, all of these types of situations, this supplement is helpful. So that might be something that surfers could look into. Great. Thank you. Uh, it's, it's great to see gentlemen sending in questions because another one is from a gentleman named Bruce. And he says, I was diagnosed with, I hope I pronounced it, lichen planus about a year ago. And the dermatologist prescribed clobetasol gel for the spots on my body and face, as well as a liquid form for my scalp. I also get sores in my mouth that are hard to treat with the gel. So my doctor has me swishing daily with a solution of tacrolimus dissolved in water. And I have a thumbnail that is split in two due to this condition. Is there anything else I can do? These treatments are helping symptoms, but the condition isn't going away. Maybe you can explain what this condition is. Lichen planus, it can come in many forms, but it is basically an, uh, a skin condition that has patches and little growths of that are inflammatory and responses to the immune system over uh, misbehaving. We don't always know why it happens, but it is sometimes relatable to an internal cause that can eventually be found. Um, I also am aware of some cases of lifestyle management that have helped to reduce it. I know of one case where somebody had it for years and years and years and eventually got the amalgam metal fillings in their teeth replaced with ceramic fillings, coincidentally, not related in any way to what was going on with the skin. And it turned out that the skin cleared up. So it, I think it can be a very strange um, outward sign of the immune system at being activated in some way. I don't know of any specific cures for it other than continuing to investigate internally, maybe see an allergist, maybe um, investigate whether there are any uh, implanted metal in your body and try try consider evaluating that or make sure your diet is clean, your stress is low, your sleep is good. All those factors always, always make a big difference in immune system dysregulation. Yeah. It's funny. We have a, we have a second question on lichen planus, the oral version. Sheila says, do you have any recommendations to control the oral version of this? Cause he said he got mouth sores too, Bruce. I don't really have any, this is a, one of the very tough um, stubborn skin conditions. You know, I feel like dermatology is either pretty straightforward and basic and we can handle it pretty easily or very complex, difficult, and life-altering for people. Lichen planus can be one of those conditions that can cause some a lot of discomfort. And um, like I, I just mentioned, make sure there's no metal appliances in your mouth or uh, in your body or anything else you could be allergic to. It can be a, a funny, I think it can be a funny um, presentation of an unidentified allergy. It can be a funny presentation of a, an, a triggered immune system with something that hasn't been found yet. Great, thank you. There are so many, I mean, how do you learn all this in medical? There seems like, is there more things that can go wrong with the skin than just about anything else? Well, back when I was in my dermatology training, which is a few decades ago now, uh, believe it or not, there were 3,000 identified skin diseases. And our textbook was two volumes that were this thick. So it was like this much textbook just for dermatology. And supposedly the board exam was is one of the hardest to pass. I think there are now even more identified skin conditions, partly because we know so much more about genetics and about the immune system. Um, it is overwhelming for sure. And this is why I don't know everything about everything, even though I wish I did, but I hope that I can begin to steer people in a helpful direction. Wow. Well, you have, you've seen, you're great at answering these questions. So thank you. Here's one. I don't know if 
we talked about this a lot so far in the show from Joanne. It's about, I believe it's called melasma. She says, I'm currently plant-based and SOS-free after seeing one of your YouTube videos a year ago. Can you please ask Dr. Krant what foods I need to eat to help with melasma? I've been using pignamorn cream and having microneedling to help reduce the melasma. What else she could she suggest? And maybe you could talk about my, what microneedling is and what melasma is, because not everybody knows all this. I don't know the name of the cream that you were saying, so I won't comment on that, but uh, melasma is a disorder uh, or normal uh, unevenness of skin pigmentation, depending on whether it's normal for you and your family and your genetics. Some families are just prone to it. It's, it's familial and genetic. And for some people, it's not common or normal in their family or in their history. One version of melasma used to be called the mask of pregnancy. And that is because for some people, the estrogen hormones that rise up when you're pregnant are also the same hormones that get into our skin, interact with the sun and trigger this deep, deep increased pigmentation. Melasma is very tricky because it can be deep in the skin, ex excess production of pigment that is hard to remove. And if we are able to remove it, it is hard to keep it away. It's sort of once triggered, always trying to recur, especially if the life conditions haven't changed. So one thing I always like to mention now, since I learned about it, is that one of the hidden triggers of melasma can actually be iron deficiency. And especially in people watching what they're eating, there may be a risk of consuming too little iron. So just make sure your, your physician checks your iron levels, your, your ferritin levels, your iron stores, and that you're not anemic and iron deficient because th that can be a trigger for melasma, for being prone to have this increased pigmentation. Another system that could be out of whack and could potentially show up as dispigmentation is the thyroid. So just make sure that your thyroid hormone levels are also healthy and even and doing what they're supposed to do. But one of the triggers we know besides um, at pregnancy and high estrogen, because this can also happen in men, is ex uh, chronic exposure to heat or irritants. Some people who stand over, for example, a hot stove all the time, that chronic heat will actually create chronic redness in the skin and the dilated blood vessels that are under those areas of skin can actually end up leaking red blood cells. And eventually that skin can become pigmented too. Sometimes it's true melasma, which is hormonally related. And sometimes it's almost a hemosiderosis, which is leaked red blood vessels that get into the skin and then turn brown. Both of those pigment conditions are very stubborn and hard to reverse. But it's turned out that not only using laser treatments carefully in the right people or microneedling carefully in the right people, but also lasers that reduce vascular um, issues like the V-beam laser or the XLV, since they reduce the blood vessels underneath the area, they are also sometimes helpful in reducing the pigmentation that comes from the dilated blood vessels. Interesting. And what is this microneedling she's saying she's doing to help? Well, it is just what it sounds like, microneedling, but it can range from devices that are sold to be used at home, which you can see makes me cringe because I feel like people may hurt themselves, introduce infections and scarring. Um, the ones that are sold for home use are supposed to be extremely tiny needles that don't actually pierce the dermis um, and don't even really pierce the epidermis, which is the outer layer of the skin. But there are some illegally sold microneedling devices that may lead to inflammation, damage, and bleeding. Those are not safe to use at home. In an office, your physician may use physical... Uh, analog, what's it were like hand rolled microneedling, but may also be more likely to have a mechanical device that does controlled depth microneedling at a controlled pace. You should see somebody very experienced because they are needles. They are poking your skin. 
and they can not only help with scarring and pigmentation, but they may also cause scarring and pigmentation. So careful, choose carefully. Do you do this in your office? Do you personally do this procedure? I don't do microneedling in my office. I, I haven't ever uh, really picked it up. We do have a device that does a type of microneedling that also delivers energy and which is comes out as heat below the skin. I don't do that device much anymore because it was very expensive. It was very uncomfortable. And there are risks of leaving marks on the skin, which I didn't feel like tolerating. And I didn't know if the results that people were getting were as much as they were expecting. And I'm a pretty conservative person who likes to do things that make people happy and work very well all the time and are not super, super expensive. Does it hurt? So uh, it, oh, it definitely hurts. Uh, It's usually we would put a numbing cream on you first for quite some time, but even with that, it's, I've seen it be pretty uncomfortable. I'm sure in, in depending on the device and depending on what's happening, especially microneedling without the energy delivery, it's, it's much more tolerable. The reason I'm concerned about mentioning the, the radio frequency and other energy devices that have microneedling is in a case of melasma, we really don't want to introduce a lot of heat into the skin while we're trying to heal the skin because the heat triggers more melasma. So it's a pretty tricky decision to make that I would not really make on yourself at home or at a, at a med spa, I would really make sure you see a board certified dermatologist who's experienced in a range of options. Great. It seems like beauty knows no pain, right? Well, no pain, no gain. Um, the price, yeah, beauty, beauty is pain. It's, it's all true, but we like to minimize the pain and maximize the benefits and do low risk things that everybody's happy with. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause you know, I, when I, when I see certain celebrities that have had so much work and I mean, did they not know it doesn't look good? You know, that's, it's a couple of things going on there. Three things, at least three things. One is I think we have societal creep of, you know, what looks normal to society. Uh, if you will look over time, there's always, there have always been trends in beauty. And right now we're in a phase that is flirting with these extreme artificial looks. But I also think that when you get something done to yourself, you become used to looking at your new self and you kind of start to forget what you're, what you looked like before. And then you get so used to it. You feel like you just look the same and your, your mind kind of wants to feel like you're freshening up and looking different. So that can create a trend where you start going back for more and more stuff. And the other thing, and you have to make sure you have a doctor who's not going to help you go too far down that road. You need somebody who's going to say, actually, you look fabulous. This is a very good natural look for you. Let's not add more in and try to push it because even though that wrinkle might smooth out, your whole face will be too full and it won't overall, you won't look like your natural, beautiful self. You know, that's so what that's- Dr. Lyle said. Cause I always thought like, you know, people accuse me of having work and I'm such a, I mean, I, I went to a pedodontist till I was 35. So last thing I'm going to do is be cutting and injecting. But, you know, I said, he came over for dinner a couple of weeks ago and I go, look how, oh, because people say you look so old. And I go, look how, look at Dr. Lyle. This, I, please, can I have Botox? Can I have something? And he says, you know, people never look like the way they're supposed to look once they start doing that. Like you can always tell something's a little off, you know? Well, I don't know. I'm very conservative. So I feel like it's, I know, I know ways to do just a little bit and help people look like themselves. That's my goal is always have you look like yourself, but more refreshed. I agree. We don't want to let it get pushed. Is this too personal, but do you do yourself? uh, Let me answer that after saying one more thing that I want to say about the last question, which was the the final situation that people could be in is they could have a true talk about psychodermatology. They could have a condition that's really a psychological condition disorder called body dysmorphic disorder. And that is, I'm sure Dr. Lyle has talked about that. That is a condition 
where we truly do not see ourselves as we look to the outer world and we see only something that is wrong with us to such a degree that it can almost become uh that we have a break from reality and we think we look deformed and ugly when actually we look normal and healthy and we keep pursuing more and more treatments to fix something and constantly pursuing the treatments actually makes it worse and worse, but we never, we're not able to see it. So that's a true psychological disorder that really needs therapy and possibly medication. And a lot of doctors might get trapped into trying to help people who have this disorder, because we always want to make our patients happy and feel beautiful and feel good. We want to treat the inside and have them feel confident when they leave. But we have to be careful to recognize when that is the situation and not get pulled in because we're only going to hurt that patient in the end. So that's the last thing I wanted to say about that. To answer your question, I have not done any treatments on myself, nor had any done on me. So well, you look I, amazing. Let me just say, I don't know if I'm can't answer that yet. I, I don't, I don't know if I'm allowed to say your age, but I think you look amazing. Your skin's right. amazing. So whatever you're doing is working, but like you say, glowing from within, we know that you practice good lifestyle. You're, you're certified in lifestyle medicine, board certified in that as well. Aren't you? I'm board certified in lifestyle medicine. I'm certified in integrative dermatology, which is something I'm still a beginner at, but trying to learn more about, which is just a holistic approach to dermatology and I'm a certified life coach. So I'm also always aware of the lifestyle pillars. You know, I always mention the sleep, the stress management there. It's so true. The food choices, what we are, what we eat is really true, but also what we're doing to take care of our inner health. I mean, you started out, first thing you asked me was about psychology and, and mental health and our skin and of course, not only does it affect our skin, it affects everything in our lives. So I believe that from the inside out is the way to go. And with a little bit of help from the outside in. Great. Well, thank you. That's wonderful. Well, here's, here's funny. Here's a, cause we're talking about like looking good. And here's a question on removing makeup. You know, I find makeup fascinating. If you look at some of my older videos, I used to wear so much makeup. And when I moved to the desert, it was just too hot, you know, like it would melt off. So I got, so now I don't really wear it except on special occasions. I mean, of course I have a little powder on for, and lip gloss, but you know, it's make the whole history of makeup is fascinating to me and how it can make people drastically look differently. Well, you, you, I'm sure everyone has seen some of these videos of the extreme makeup artists who really are creating art with com making a completely different uh, face or sometimes not even a face, what they're creating. So makeup is art. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a whole history of using makeup to, you know, change how we present ourselves to the world. Some of it is, it, it also is ties in again to that psychosocial commentary about why are we doing this? Where did it come from? Are women doing it for ourselves? Are we doing it for the gaze of others? And, um, you know, as long as we still learn to love ourselves from within as we are and use it for fun and then take it off carefully and keep our skin healthy. It's all good. Do you think most men like makeup? Because a lot of men have told me they, they really don't. Oh, now I'm going to be guessing. But I would say that men may be uh, attracted to a made up face. They probably don't like it when the face underlying all that makeup looks drastically different. Um, but maybe they wouldn't have been attracted to that person in the first place to get to know them first. But I have a feeling they probably don't even notice when there is makeup that's sort of subtle and they're enjoying it without realizing that that's what they're enjoying. And it's just a little bit different from what the person looks like underneath. Maybe they can't tell the difference. I don't know. It's funny. There's a whole episode of I Love Lucy about this, where where Ricky is trying to discourage this guy from getting married, and he goes, "You know, women have a whole nother face underneath their face, you know, that you don't even see until you get married." And and, and I remember, um, I believe it was it Mrs. Maisel, or there was some 
show where like she would wake up early and put the face on. So the husband could never see her without makeup. You know, I remember seeing that, but I also, um, saw there's an episode, I think it's the show Frankie and Johnny with Lily Tomlin and Grace and Frankie, Grace Grace and Frankie, Grace and Frankie with Lily Tomlin and, um, Jane Fonda. And they, I, it's either Jane Fonda or both of them. I think Jane Fonda, um, is on there just taking off her eyelashes, her makeup and everything from fully made up camera ready. And she takes everything off, you know, just to show what's actually going on. And yeah, I, I just remember that it was just this groundbreaking and brave thing for her to do. Yeah. Well, you know, I just saw 80 by Brady. It's a cute picture. It was Lily Tomlin, Jane Fonda, Sally Fields, and Rita Moreno. And I mean, Rita Moreno looks incredible. Like, you know, I, I just, cause I'm just curious, like what it, I want to look like her when I'm 91. I mean, she looked amazing. I actually saw a clip of that. I was watching Turner classic movies probably with my parents and I saw a clip of the four of them sitting there and, and interviewing Rita Moreno. And I agree. We all said she looked spectacular. You know, I'm going to say it's because of her dancing, keeping her physical health up her you whole know, life. It's so interesting. You said that because I recently interviewed a 99 year old, almost a hundred year old physician who has more views on my channel now over 300,000 than anyone else. And he became a friend of mine because he lives near me. And so I've seen him in person and he does not look 99. I mean, obviously, you know, he, you wouldn't say he looks, you know, 30, but I would say, I don't know, like 70 or something. And he still drives and he drives at night and he's physically active, but he's been vegetarian since birth. And I think people don't realize that lifestyle is really important. I think until it gets too late. I mean, you know, yes, some people are genetically blessed with maybe different or better looks, but what you can control, it makes such a difference, your diet and exercise habits. Right. And I also want to go back to the movement um, because a lot of people think of exercise as the way they're going to lose weight. And when I became plant-based, I really cha- I really changed my thought about what exercise was for me. I realized that it wasn't actually what how I was losing weight. I lost weight when I changed my diet just from the food choices alone. But the exercise and dancing was still so important because it was keeping the frame that was going to have less weight on it, healthy and strong, and also keeping circulation up and muscle, muscle strength and muscle tone, which all control our hormones and our stress levels and our brain health. So not only that, there's research that shows that exercise directly affects skin health and skin anti-aging. So there's just no getting away from all of these pillars and factors in, uh, interplaying with each other. And I believe in Rita Moreno's case, of course, she's beautiful, but I'm sure that that lifelong dancing, you know, kept her vitality up. That's, that's very encouraging. Okay. This is, this is from, uh, this is Lisa and it's about makeup removal. And she said, could you please ask Dr. Krant her advice on gently and safely and cleanly removing eye makeup, such as mascara, eyeshadow, and liner. Many of the products I've tried burn and sting my eyes. I only know to recommend, you know, a few, a couple of old fashioned things. I say like Pond's cold cream or Albaline, which are products that my current patients, some of them have never even heard of just from the drugstore. And um, I know some people have even used Vaseline petroleum jelly, but I don't think that's a great idea around the eyes. There's, there are gentle eye makeup removers that you have to shake and mix together. These two light oils, those, those work well. What's important is to really rinse with clear water after removing the makeup to get the makeup remover and residual makeup particles away. Finally, the glycerin, you know, or old fashioned glycerin plain soaps that don't really have a lot of fragrance are kind of a, can be a clean way to remove residual makeup that some of those more oily based makeup removers can't quite get. It's always important when removing eye makeup to be physically gentle. You know, I worry about the cloths and the, and the wipes because I feel like they create a lot of friction on the eye and they do, some of them do contain chemicals that are actually very common allergens. 
so they can create rashes on their own. Um, sometimes soap and water just works too. And we don't have to be so fancy with super gentle removers. And, you know, I'm not somebody who is anti-soap. There are some people who say, oh, never put soap on your face. I don't, that's not really me. Yeah. So, you know, I, when I stopped wearing mascara about five years ago, I, every brand I tried, I'd have an allergic reaction. So when I do wear stuff on my eyes, like once in a while, if I'm doing a conference, I just put on the false lashes. Cause I don't like having anything on my eyes, you know, it's uncomfortable for me. So you, do you use the glue, the lashes with glue? I, well, I, I only do it, like I say, once or twice a year, if I'm presenting, because I don't know how to do it, I get a makeup artist. So I'm assuming she's gluing them on, but I take them off a few hours later, you know, is that bad? No, no. I was just curious because now they have this type that are like mag magnets. I tried those. I couldn't get them to work, but that is brilliant, you know? And I know a lot of people do that. Um, I, I forget what it's called. The, the, there's a technique where like they're, they're, they're sewing on lashes or something, but it sounded it looks good, but it just, it didn't, I didn't do it. Do you know what I'm talking about? The lash thing? Well, I know some people who go get their lashes done. It takes, you know, like two or three hours. And I'm, I'm just sorry. I don't have time to do that. So <laughs> I'm, I'm just, you know, like, give me the basic mascara that I is know. not waterproof so that I can easily remove it. And I mean, it looks to me like if you're wearing makeup, you're not wearing very much. And I think you look amazing. I mean, I don't think you're wearing a ton of makeup right now, if I'm correct. 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 Um, you know, I don't even, I let's just call it lazy. I'm too lazy to do it. Absolutely. Well, I think we might have time for one more question, possibly two, depending how long the answer is. And this is from Sue. Are there ways of calming down cystic acne on the back and the jawline? And maybe explain the difference between cystic acne and acne, if there is a difference. Acne is uh, contains a range of different types of, I'll use the word blemishes, even though that's sort of a generic word that means like a spot, a lesion, but, uh, true acne contains pimples, which are, uh, pimple is another generic term. So never mind that papules, which are little small bumps, pustules, which are little small bumps with the white tips, cysts, which are the deeper, pimples that aren't are below the surface that are red and swollen and nodules, which are even larger. And it also the open and closed comedones, which are like the white heads and black heads that have no inflammation. So the first four I mentioned have are all inflamed type inflammatory acne that contain some redness and soreness. And the comedones are the white heads and black heads that don't hurt, but they're bumpy and they tend to be smaller. Cystic acne is just describing the type of acne that has those larger, deeper cysts. Some people are more prone to that type of acne, and some people only have comedonal acne that's not inflamed and never get those deeper cysts. Cystic acne along the jawline in the back tends to be what we say is more like hormonal acne, but I'm putting it in quotes because all acne is hormonal all acne is caused by four factors. And one of those factors is hormonal for people that have really unbalanced hormones or genetically high, uh, testosterone and other androgens, the hormonal appearance of the acne may be more prevalent, but, uh, for women, one of the most common factors I see when out of the blue acne becomes more common around the jawline and on the back is actually coming off of a birth control they've been on for many years that was dampening those hormones. And then when the hormones are let are set free by coming off of the birth control, it can unbalance the skin for several months. And sometimes that calms down by itself. Um, but if this jawline and back acne is new and there's no relationship to hormonal forms of birth control, it could be worth going to see the gynecologist to sort of see if all hormones are in balance and also check the diet, make sure there's not too much dairy or inflammatory foods being eaten because dairy is one of the triggers so for I hormonal acne. Wow. That's a, that's a, is that a problem of people of all ages or just younger people? Well, 
I'm, I think these days I would say it's all ages, but it's definitely younger teenage and in the twenties. And then for women, it can start to appear again, you know, like in the forties and fifties, when our estrogen starts to wane for sort of a, um, perimenopausal situation because the testosterone and the androgens, which are the male hormones become relatively higher when the test, when the estrogen starts to go down and those androgens, those testosterones are what are triggering that inflammatory hormonal acne. Wow. Thank you. This has been so enlightening. I feel like I get a little mini medical school education every time I talk to you. Well, you know, I, it helps me keep learning too. And thank everybody for your questions, because these are things that everybody wants to know and that I like to know more about. So it keeps, it keeps me researching and, and keeps me coming back to you, Chef AJ. And there'll never be a lack because, you know, we had 50 before we started and I don't know how many we got through, but we'll, maybe we should not announce you so that they won't send in questions for a few months so we can catch up. Well, maybe one day we'll just do like a big three hour extravaganza and just Go and charge that. for it. No, just <laughs> but maybe you never know. I mean, there's a lot of interest in this topic. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Prant. Thank you, Chef. All right. And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back tomorrow when my guest is Dr. Nikki Davis. Take care, everyone. <laughs>